0: What's
1: your favorite way to learn?
0: I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail.
2: This is Worlds Awaiting,
1: helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the worlds of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of space centers, planetariums, and summer reading. Our first guest is James Porter from the Crystal McCullough Space Center, and we'll chat about his educational experience. Then we'll talk with Mary Bigler, an education specialist, about summer reading. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarians' table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll have story time with the poem The Fire Brigade. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. One question I am often asked is, what is young adult literature? While most people have a general sense of what this category of books is, they are often looking for a more specific sense of what makes a book for young adults different from a book for children or even adults. So to help answer that question in a very small way, let me offer you my definition of young adult literature which is, young adult literature is a work that represents an entirely adolescent point of view that is mainly marketed to that same audience. But how does that definition help us to identify what young adult literature is? For me, it helps because the definition carries in it two very important defining features of young adult literature. First, that it tells the story from a teenager's point of view, and second, it is marketed to teens. For me, books that fall into the young adult category feature not only teen protagonists, but teenage perspectives on the world. So by this definition, books such as Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings or Sandra Cisneros' The House on Mango Street would not be considered young adult. While these books do have teenage protagonists, they are not told from the point of view of a teenager. Rather, they are retellings of memoirs and are rendered by an adult looking back on life as a teenager. As a result, these books feature analysis or insight about events or characters that come from an adult's reflection on the past. On the other hand, books that I would consider as young adults, such as Elizabeth Scott's Living Dead Girl or Matt de la Pena's Mexican White Boy, not only have teenage characters, but also use a teenage point of view, embodying typical teenage feelings, language, and ideas. In addition to point of view, publishers impact the makeup of a genre. When a house publishes a book, it decides which audience that book is best marketed to and their designation clearly holds a lot of power since publishers target certain librarians, readers and booksellers to help them promote and market their works. These decisions clearly influence whether or not books make it into teens hands. And so I feel that how a book is marketed should also be considered when classifying books as young adult. So, for me, it is these two elements that make up a young adult book. And maybe this little bit of information from Rachel's world can also help you decide just what young adult literature is.
3: Rachel's
1: world. Looking up at the sky on a clear night can be a magnificent experience. There are millions of unknown stars and planets that are just waiting to be explored. Many children are excited to make those discoveries, but may not have access to resources that help them learn deeply about space. Today, we have James Porter from the Christa McAuliffe Space Center in the studio, and he's on a mission to change that. Welcome, James.
4: Well, thanks for having me.
1: I am so excited to introduce you to our listening audience today. You do something very unique. You run a planetarium in a school. So tell us a little bit about that to start out. Just give us some background and information about your project.
4: Yeah, so uh, right now our planetarium is primarily focused on part of our field trip kids come from all over the valley, primarily Alpine School District, but we even get Jordan School District, Provo, Nebo, and they come and participate in our space simulators, and as a part of our classroom experience, they also do the planetarium, and uh, a big part of that is we're connecting the curriculum and content that they experience through our experiential learning with some realistic, uh, here's what's going on out in the universe today, and so our planetarium is a way of really captivating them with something that they can go home and look at.
1: That is amazing to me, because I think most of these kind of space simulators and planetariums, when we talk about them, they're usually connected with universities or maybe private entities. And I love that this is connected with a school district, and it mainly is for the school district to come to. Why do you think that's important? Why do you think that that's an important part of our kids learning directly in their schooling and not necessarily as kind of an extra that we would take them to outside of their schooling?
4: Yeah, I the thing that I think is really important about having it in that community school environment is accessibility. Uh, everything seems so distant at times. We've got to drive to this. We've got to drive to that. And and yes, you've got to drive to it. But when you go, oh, it's in a school, it feels a little bit more comfortable. Uh, it's a little less imposing for them to come and participate. And I think they also recognize this is directly 100% focused on education. Uh, you don't go into school and think, oh, well, they're there to make money. Um, and so the nice thing is, is we don't have to. We're here just to support a community that sees the value in education. And just as much as we could go out and invest in lots of other types of projects out there, I think that this is really great because in that unique environment of a of just a school, they have, they have a comfort level instantly. And so right there, you get a student in there and they go, oh, I'm just in a school. I can I know what's expected of me, um, and I know that I can expect to gain something from this, that I can, I can really think and I can ask questions. That's one of the things that's really good about the planetarium that we do is because it's a more uh, interactive environment, we get a lot of questions that I've never heard or seen in, in some of the planetariums that I've visited before because kids are comfortable. And they see that that's what they're there to do. They're supposed to ask questions in school, and so having that planetarium in that setting makes it even easier.
1: That is very insightful. These questions. So, what are some of these questions that you get that are things that you wouldn't normally get in other kinds of settings?
4: Um, I think a lot of it is because we build a relationship with those kids as they're in there. We we get questions where they're pondering about it. And we give them some time to be wowed by this immersive experience of being surrounded by a 40-foot dome of you know, stars and planets and uh, other celestial objects. But then they start saying, now you were talking about the movement of this star and how uh, it's different in its pattern than this one. And they ask why questions because they've started to think about how does this connect and interrelate? Instead of just what is that, they ask why is it doing that? And so with that sort of a... A comfortable setting, the kids really start to ask things like, okay, you said that there's a, a Mezier object over in this area, but why isn't there one over here? And we go, there is. You just don't see it. And there's not a light there because it's so distant." And then we, we talk about the different tools that let them see at those different ranges. So we'll talk about Hubble. And then we'll talk about some of our new uh, telescopes and other radio uh, telescopes that are used, and we say, well, this is how we saw this one, but technology has changed, and now we can see this one, and then we'll talk about the um, New Horizons probe, and we'll say, okay, when you guys weren't born yet, it was here, but now look how far it's reached, and, and we tell them, guess what, there's this new object at Ultima Thule that they're going to go and see, and, and the kids love that it's like, hey, this is connected to me, and I think that's one of the things that's really cool about our planetarium is we get a really good connection to them.
1: And I think fundamentally that's what we want in all educative experience, right? We want this to be personalized for them. You describe this so well of these wonderful things that are happening. Maybe more specifically, describe for us like a typical experience. What, what would happen? Maybe like the first time a student comes in to your experience. What, what would be the pathway and, and what would be the outcome that you'd expect at the end of their experience?
4: Yeah, so uh, with our field trip program, uh, they'll spend about half of their time in our Starship simulators, and that's where they're doing with a lot of the critical thinking of how do I overcome these problems. But then we hit them with a lot of wonderment in the planetarium, and and that's kind of the the process that they come in. We'll we'll put them in a daylight setting so that they go. This is what it looks like outside, and we make sure that the The time of the day is matched up so that they go, yeah, I was just outside, and this is what it does look like. And then we go, okay, let's just imagine if the atmosphere was gone. What sort of effect would that have? And we do a lot of cause and effect. Let's get rid of the atmosphere. Let's get rid of the mountains. What percentage of stars can we now see without this in the way? And so we go through that process of let's take these things away and see what we gain. But what if we enhance uh, a little – or we get rid of a little bit of light pollution because we're in the city? We go through this series – and that's kind of that start to finish gives them the process of, well, if I wanted to go home and see this, I need to, A, get a little bit further away from the city. I need to go through and make sure that I don't shine my uh, flashlight in my eyes so that it takes time for me to process. So we teach them how they can go through and learn about this on their own. And that, I think, is that, that kind of start to finish. We hit them with it, and then we go, look what else is out there when you really get a moment to see and so it it hopefully encourages them to continue, and so that's kind of the process that we go through uh, is giving them something of an explanation of how they can go and learn more, um, and get them excited because they know there's so much more to see.
1: So, how have you seen the outcomes come to fruition? Right? Have you seen kids get really excited about it? What what kinds of responses are you getting from kids and parents?
4: Yeah. So we the the really fun thing right now is that because we started back in 1990. And actually, our planetarium, because it's inflatable currently, they would go around to all the different schools and visit them and do the planetarium show ahead of time. And what's really fun now is as we look towards the permanent planetarium that we're trying to build, that's just increasing that audience because there's limited time. you got to set up, take down. There's only so many people. We're worried about damaging. Um, but what I see going on in the future is that we're going to have families that say we need something that is more than just a movie yeah. let's go get something where we get excited to talk to our kids about what happened that the drive home is just as important as the event itself because families are interacting and engaging and saying well what what else what other questions didn't we get to ask and so that's kind of the fun thing like i said we've been doing this for almost 30 years coming up and my favorite thing right now is we get a lot of parents who have gotten their kids excited cuz they did it when they were kids and they come and they say oh you've been assigned as this position and oh did you do this part and they'll ask them questions because they remember because there's that that deep connection that this sort of wonderment creates you put them in an immersive situation and the the tactile responses that they get because they're actually physically engaging and and talking to other crew members and they're having to all work together and they're asking those questions in the planetarium. All of that comes together and makes it so they don't forget it. And so then now the really fun thing is uh, as far as that long-term effect, we're seeing parents who are excited for their kids' field trip, not just, oh, I remember going to the fire station. It was kind of like this. It was, oh, I remember going to the space center. Let me tell you, one of my favorite things this last week, um, we do little sci-fi encounters, uh, and one of the kids started whispering to their captain and said, my mom told me all about this type of alien. This is how you're supposed to handle it. And, they just, and you could tell that they had gone through all this background. But I love it because it showed that parent spent a lot of time with their kid before they came and that that's worth it right there you made a connection uh, in their family you made a connection to content and and that's the that's the thing we're trying to create yeah. these opportunities for education and engagement with families
1: and that is what education should be at its very foundation which i absolutely love you're obviously very passionate about this so how did you get involved in this what what brought you to this experiential learning situation, and, and why why is it important to you to be part of this?
4: Yeah, I got involved with the Space Center um, when I was a kid in, in the district going through as a field trip. Uh, but even before that, I heard about it from my brother, and my brother got me excited about it, and my imagination was stoked. And that's, that's kind of the cool thing about it is uh, you don't... It's almost impossible to understand until you go, but that excitement... Uh, led me to go in. In high school, I worked there uh, after volunteering for a time. And then uh, I actually went into education because of it. Uh, I I saw that in education, the thing that I valued about my experience at the Space Center was I loved kids and their aha moments, where they'd go, oh, I get it, or oh, I overcame something I didn't think I could. And I knew that this You know, At that age, I didn't think there was any other way except going into education. And so I went and I taught for about six years after uh, going to USU um, and getting my teaching degree there. But then the director of the program retired and an opportunity opened up. And I thought, oh, I love this because I get an aha moment every day. Whereas in teaching, you're working for weeks and months to get those. Uh, So I get to cheat a bit and I love that about it. Um, But my my passion comes from... um, I don't think I'm anywhere in comparison, but I found some interesting things out after or I made some connections to the program afterward that I'm a social studies teacher. I'm not even a a science teacher, but I love science. I think that um, in looking at the way that we progress uh, in society, science gives us that opportunity to look out and see what else is out there and keeps us excited about it. We can do the same humdrum and we can get really good at it. But if we stretch ourselves and try new things, uh, science is that segue that lets us do that. And so even though I'm a so- social studies teacher, kind of like Krista McAuliffe, who we're named after, we're the Krista McAuliffe Space Center, and um, she wanted kids to get excited about this because she saw the value of it. And, and I kind of like that fun connection. Um, it's just something that has, has benefited my life because there's a lot that goes on at the Space Center beyond just the field trips beyond the birthday parties that people do, beyond work groups coming and trying to do team building, uh, we have a volunteer program with 60 active volunteers that come in and put in. Last summer, over a three-month period, they put in 5,000 hours Wow! just in helping that experience. But they grew. They developed skills. They learned how to interact. And a lot of these are shyer, more timid teens, um, and it creates a, a space that's safe for them yeah. and gives them a chance to grow. So there's, a, there's so many different aspects that started out as just a concept that a teacher, Victor Williamson, he started with it and he worked hard and developed it. And now it's continuing in perpetuity. Um, and so I love that I have a chance to keep that going and find more ways through the new planetarium to reach a wider audience, get more people excited.
1: Well, thank you for sharing your excitement with us today. I love this project, and I'm so glad to share it with my audience and really show what education can be, the the great potentials that we can have for this wonderful form of education. Thank you so much. You're welcome. James Porter is the director of the Krista McCullough Space Center in Pleasant Grove, Utah. Now we have story time with a poetry reading of The Fire Brigade by Ella Wheeler Wilcox.
0: Hark! High over the rattle and clamor and clutter. Of traffic-filled streets do you hear that loud noise? I'm pushing and rushing to see what's the matter. Like herds of wild cattle, go pell-mell the boys. There's a fire in the city, the engines are coming. The bold bells are clanging, make way in the streets. The wheels of the hose cart are spinning and humming, in time to the music of the galloping feet. Make way there, make way there, the horses are flying the sparks of their swift hooves shoot higher and higher. The crowds are increasing, the gamins are crying. Hooray, boys! Hooray, boys! Come on to the fire! With the clanging and banging and clatter and rattle, the long ladders follow the engine and hose. The men are all ready to dash into battle, but will they come out again? God only knows. At the windows and doorways crowd questioning faces. There's something about it that quickens one's breath. How proudly the brave fellows sit in their places and speed to the conflict that may be their death. Still faster and faster and faster and faster, the grand horses thunder and leap on their way. The red foe is yonder and may prove the master Turn out there, bold traffic, turn out there, I say. For once the loud truckman knows oaths will not matter, and reins in his horse and yields to his fate. The engines are coming, let pleasure crowds scatter. Let streetcar and truckman and mail wagon wait. They speed like a comet, they pass in a minute. The boys follow on like a tail to a kite. The commonplace street has but traffic now in it. The great fire engines have swept out of sight.
1: Summertime is a great time to be a child. There's just so much to do. From jam packed adventures at summer camp to lazy days at the pool, children are exploring and learning about the world around them. But they also have the potential to lose some knowledge from the school year. Today I have on the phone Mary Bigler, a professor at Eastern Michigan University and an acclaimed author. Welcome, Mary! Hello, Rachel. I'm delighted to have an opportunity to visit with you. Oh, it is always a joy to visit with you because I think we are both passionate about so many things. We share our passions of learning and literacy and reading. But one of the things that we are really advocates for, and you in particular are a great advocate for, is summer reading. So tell us, why do you think summer reading is so important?
2: Well, you know, it's absolutely critical that we keep children reading during the summer, Rachel. I say just because the school doors are closed doesn't mean reading and learning should stop. We've known for a long time as educators that in the summer children experience what we call the summer slide, or in other words, they regress in their reading. When we test children in June and then retest the same children in September, they've lost ground. They've gone backwards. The average student loses about one month of instruction during the summer, and some students, unfortunately, can lose up to about three months of reading achievement over the summer if they don't read. But the good news is that if children keep reading, they can maintain their level that they achieved in the preceding school year And all they have to do to do that, according to the research, is read about six books over the summer break. So I, of course, like to say, well, if we can read six books and maintain what we had, why don't we read 12 books or 15 books and gain some ground and become better readers over the summer? So that's why I think it's so important for all of us to encourage children to read over the summer.
1: Mary, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that summer slide is really something that is significant. And I don't think a lot of parents or adults or maybe even teachers or librarians to that extent really understand how significant this regression is and then how hard it is for them to get back when they go back into school. So very simple things we can do as parents to help students read over the summer. So what are some of your suggestions that we can do to help them them engage in reading?
2: Okay. I like to start with what I call ABC, because that's a very simple thing for parents and teachers and interested adults to remember. A, children need access to reading materials. We know that you don't learn to swim if you don't have a lake or a a, a swimming pool or a creek near your house. Well, you don't learn to read and become a good reader if you don't have access to reading materials. So first of all, we need to make sure that we have reading material available for our children. That's the A, access. B are books, books that match children's interests and their reading levels. We know that if children are involved in something that they care about and enjoy reading, it's a lot easier to get them to read than if we're forcing them to read something that they don't care about. And that's true with adults also. So we want to make sure that we have materials available that match their interests and also their reading levels. So if a child is reading approximately at a third-grade level, we can't expect them to be reading books that are written up very much above that. Otherwise, it will be frustrating for them. So the B stands for books that match their interest and reading levels. And then C is to make sure that the children are comprehending. And we sometimes, as the adult, have to help them check their comprehension to make sure that they're understanding what they read. So if we follow that, A, B, C, that we have access to books and reading materials, that we have material that matches their interests and reading levels, and we make sure that they're understanding it, I think that's our best chance to keep them reading and actively engaged with reading all summer, as well as through the rest of the school year. <laughs>
1: That is a wonderful way to look at it, Mary. I really appreciate you breaking it down that way, but let's let's break it down a little bit more. Let's start with the A. When we talk about access, what ways can we help our children get access to books, especially uh, during the summer?
2: Yes, uh, a lot of thoughts about that.
1: Uh, first of all, let's remember our public libraries we are
2: so blessed to live in a country where we have uh, libraries available to us and libraries give us access to books and magazines cds audiobooks, ebooks and they also offer additional opportunities for children to be engaged with literary activities they offer story hours and they have reading incentive programs where children might uh, read a certain number of books and then have a reward of some kind They feature displays of new books that are popular with children. They have author visits where you can go and listen to an author talk about writing, and that sometimes gets kids interested in reading that author's works. And they have book clubs. And librarians are wonderful resources for parents and children to consult because they know children and they know books, they know what's popular, and they can introduce the kids uh, to books that they may not find on their own. And incidentally, if I could make a plea to any school administrator or teacher or any interested citizen out there in our listening audience, I would really like to think that if we're the richest country in the world, can't we have our school library open at least one half day a week during the summer? Hear, hear. (laughs) Yeah, I know it would cost some money, but I'm confident there would be many teachers and parents who would volunteer to staff it and really, this, the school library is too valuable a resource to be sitting idle for three months. And some children don't have um, access to a public library. They may not have the transportation or, or the way to get there, but they might be able to get to their school library. So I'd really like, to, as citizens, to say, you know, we need to, to utilize this wonderful resource and make it more available to children in the summertime. Uh, I have a quote. Uh, Leslie Conger made a great statement. She said, the best of my education has come from reading. You don't need to know very much to start with if you know your way to the library.
1: Yay, I love that quote. (laughs) I love that
2: quote. And today, you know, of course, with the technology, we almost have the library at our fingertips. And it is possible to know more about any given topic than we've ever known before. So in terms of access, we, we have the technology and we have these wonderful... Public libraries that we certainly can connect with children to, to encourage them to read.
1: Yeah, I love that sense. And as, as you well know, I'm a big advocate for libraries and agree. You know, if we extend the school lunch program into the summer, forget kids' food during the school year, why not open the library too? <laughs> you know, yes. the school's already open. There's people yes. there. We might as well do that. So I am a big advocate for that. And, you know, as much as I love libraries and I really agree with you, they're a great resource, that doesn't I think in my mind, though, having actual physical books in our home and having access directly in home. So could you speak to that? Maybe something about how you feel about access with books just that are ours, that are in our home, our own home libraries.
2: Yes, and that is a very important component. In fact, one of the recommendations I often make to parents is to read a book together as a family, and if you have children of various ages, so let's say you have a 3, a 6, a 9, and a 12-year-old, there are books that you they all would enjoy, uh, The Velveteen Rabbit or Charlotte's Web or The Boxcar Children. There are both fiction and nonfiction books that young children and older children and we adults would enjoy reading together. So in building a home library... I always kind of look for those classic books and you know you can go to garage sales and flea market and secondhand stores and sometimes you can pick up a book for a, a quarter or 50 cents. Sometimes libraries sell their excess books and you if you can go there and get treasures for a quarter that you can become part of your family library and that you will read again and again with the children. So I encourage parents to read these wonderful treasures to the kids. And another important point is to let children choose what they want to read, and especially during the summer. Because, you know, during the school year, a lot of the reading that children do, they have to do. They're required to do. So in the summer, we've got more freedom for to for children to select the books they would like to read. So, 92% of children say they're more likely to finish a book that they've picked out themselves. So, When children say they want a particular book, maybe your school does the school book clubs where you can order books for a reasonable price, or maybe your child expresses an interest in a book that a teacher has read out loud, acquire that book, buy that book, give books as gifts to your children, and then say to the youngsters, let's all of us read every day for 30 to 60 minutes. Because if we would read 30 to 60 minutes every single day during the summer, we could read those 12 books that we would like to read in order to improve our reading, at least read the six so we don't slide backwards. And so uh, when children express interest in a book or an author, I think parents and grandparents and interested adults some aunts, uncles, cousins, whoever is buying gifts for that child, bring those books into the home so that, again, we do build a A home library that has reading material that children really will value.
1: Mary, we have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to our conversation in a moment. Welcome back to World's Awaiting. I'm Rachel Wadham, and I'm on the phone today with Mary Bigler, a college professor and acclaimed author sometimes we think as adults that what interests us will interest our kids and that we try to push books on them in a way that maybe will not be as beneficial to our kids. So how can we as adults really find those kinds of of books that, that will interest our children at that level to keep them reading over the summer?
2: You know, I think anything that kids are doing regularly that they choose to do Is probably where their interests are. And so, if we can tie their interests with good books and magazines, we've kind of solved the motivation problem. So, for example, if you've got children who love to play sports and they're they on a traveling soccer team or they, they enjoy shooting hoops in, uh, in the park or in the driveway, then find books about basketball and soccer. There are many children's authors that write sports books for children. And if they have a natural interest in a sport, then tie that to a reading activity. If they love animals, and many of our children love animals, and they love going to the zoo, um, then we get a hold of books by Steve Jenkins or uh, Seymour Simon, who write these wonderful books on of animals. If they just like to go for walks um, or hikes in the mountains. We can read books like Tommy DePaolo's The Cloud Book, because after you go for a walk and you're, you're look, talking about what cloud formations you saw, then you read a book about that. Um, simple, everyday tasks like going on a bus ride, and then we would read Wheels on the Bus. If we go to a concert, uh, children enjoy music, and a lot of our youngsters take music lessons. We should be reading biographies of famous musicians like Duke Ellington, Many of our youngsters are so into the video and computer games. And in those games, they encounter mythology, castles, geography, maps. So use those video games as motivation to read books like Rupert Matthews' book, Knights and Castles, or David Macaulay's book, Cathedral, or, Philip, or Neil Phillips' book, um, The Illustrated Book of Myths because if they encounter those things in the video game, they're curious, and they want more information, and then the book will supply much more depth than the video game can supply. If your little one likes Dora the Explorer, there are a whole series of books uh, featuring Dora. If they enjoy movies, find a book that goes with the movie. Right now, Steven Spielberg's The BFG, based on Roald Dahl's book, and we all know the popularity of movies like Frozen and Star Wars have inspired children to read the books these movies are based on. In other words, children, we kind of know what children are doing and what they're enjoying, and we as the adult or parent or a, a figure in their life who care about reading will say, "Hey, I'm going to use that to motivate them to read."
1: I love that sense because it's interesting to me, even though we're talking today about summer reading and we're trying to address the needs of students of reading over the summer, the reality is that all of this we're talking about is really making literacy activities and reading in particular just an integral part of our daily activities. So in some ways, what we're talking about extends beyond just the summer. This is stuff that we really should be doing on a daily basis every day. It, it, it's an integral part of who our families should be.
2: Absolutely. The thing is that during the school year, I think families are very pressured. There's so many obligations and there's so many meetings and, and places they need to be, both the adults and the children. And sometimes they don't have time to do as much with literacy activities as they do have Time during the summer. So you're right. These things are certainly things we should be doing regularly as part of our literary lives. I just think that sometimes we get so busy with so many activities during the school year that we don't do as much as we have the opportunity to do during the summer.
1: I love that. But before we close, let's touch a little bit on our C about comprehension. What are right. some important things that that parents in particular can do to just quickly assess the comprehension of their children as they're reading?
2: That is such a great question, Rachel, and that is a question I'm probably asked more frequently by parents when I go around the country doing parent programs than any other question. Uh, And there are several little quick suggestions here. One is normally your child will well, evidence whether he's comprehending or not because if the book is too hard generally the children will give up reading it if it's too easy they get bored and they probably aren't going to complete it so generally i just watch and see if the children seem engaged in the book and if they are they're probably comprehending they're not going to usually sit there and pretend that they're involved in understanding it when they're not um, also when they're done reading a chapter or when they've finished their half-hour or hour reading or they're tired of reading, ask them about what they just read. If they can summarize and tell you what they just read, then you obviously know they're comprehending it. And engage the children in questioning like, um, well, what would you have done if you'd have been in that circumstance? Or did you like the way the story ended? Or how how else could the character have handled that? That shows that they're thinking, and uh, if they can answer those questions, then surely they're understanding it. But one technique that i use a lot as a teacher and I certainly recommend to parents is, is something developed years ago by an educator named Jeanette Beach, and it's called the five-finger technique. And this is very simple, but it is so effective. When a child selects a book they think they want to buy or take from the library or uh, they're interested in reading, you open up to any page in the book, usually kind of in the middle of the book, and you tell the child to read uh, the page. Now, this is like in a chapter book where there are a lot of words. Every time they come across a word they don't know, they put up a finger. And when they come across a second word they don't know, they put up a second finger. If they get five fingers up on one page, it probably is a book they should wait and read later. In other words, that might be a little difficult for them. Because if there's approximately 100 words on a page and you don't know five of them, that's probably going to interfere with your comprehension. But if they've got one, two, or three fingers up, they should be able to read that with no problem. So that's a real easy, quick way to decide whether it's a good fit in terms of if they're going to understand the book. But I never would tell a student they couldn't read a book. Incidentally, we just had a contest in one of our local schools where the children had to write about um, the value of books. And a little six-year-old boy named Andrew won. And I want to read what he said. I think it's one of the most profound statements of all time. Little six-year-old Andrew wrote, Books let me see the whole world when my mom won't even let me cross the street.
1: Ah, uh, beautiful. is that profound?
2: <laughs> I thought that was fabulous. There are so many benefits to being a good reader. We, we develop empathy and we encounter new ideas and we're exposed to beauty and humor and truth and joy and our, our tastes and interests are broadened and our imaginations are developed. So I tell the youngsters that the readers of today are going to be the leaders of tomorrow because when we read, we have access to all the accumulated wisdom from all of the great minds of the past so how blessed we are to have access to books and magazines and the technology that today will allow us to uh, to know what all the great minds of the past have have thought about uh it's a it's a fabulous thing to be a reader
1: i think that that is the most beautiful way to sum all this up. You know, what more could you want than great travels in the summer? Summer and traveling are analogous. So let's travel and expand our horizons beyond of crossing That's the street right. when we when we start to read. It, it's such a, an amazing thing. And I appreciate your, your insight and your words. And I appreciate you letting us get to know the ABCs of summer reading.
2: Well, I agree 100 percent. And I think if we give the
1: gift of literacy, we've given them the best academic gift we could give. Without a doubt. Thank you so much, Mary. This has been delightful speaking with you. I have just enjoyed every moment of it. And I know our listeners out there have just enjoyed gaining all this wonderful new insight.
2: Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it also.
1: Mary Bigler is an award-winning professor at Eastern Michigan University and acclaimed author of Lessons Learned. Now, join me around the Librarians' Table as I talk with librarians from around Utah about children, books, and life at the library. I'm in the studio with Elise Silva and Suzanne Julian, librarians at the BYU Library. All right. One of the things we do as librarians here is we work with freshmen a lot. So these eager young people that come to our university and we're working them with them on libraries and information literacy and all this kind of stuff. So let's chat a little bit about what we would like to see in these freshmen. What, what are some of those skills and things that we, we, wish, we wish our freshmen had when they walked in our door? So maybe, maybe they can start building them before they come to us. So what are some of the things we see?
3: Uh, well, there's a really interesting kind of contradiction when we look at young folks these days. One is that we think that they're digital natives, right? They've grown up around technology. they've had an iPhone since way before I ever did. Um, but on the other hand, they're not incredibly savvy in interacting with information, particularly information online. They also have a hard time um getting into scholarly. Uh, texts, as well, and I think part of that is is a learning process about how to actually read <laughs> those types of genres. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but my first point, I think, is a little bit more important because they 'll be dealing with just online information for the rest of their lives, um, and so I think a lot of recent studies have shown that high school students really struggle uh, figuring out when they 're interacting with biased content, for example. Uh, they have a hard time corroborating information that they engage it, engage with. Um, and while they showcase a great lack of trust in traditional um, authority, they also tend to consume very unauthoritative information. And so I think... Having students in the high school arena think a little bit more cr- critically about um bias about where information is coming from and about what authority really means in certain contexts is is how I would answer that question yeah i I agree wholeheartedly do you, do you agree suzanne absolutely yeah i mean
1: what what To what extent do you think this is? I mean, do you think this is kind of a universal issue or is it more localized in some ways?
3: I think it's a universal issue. (laughs) I think studies have made that very clear, actually. So one study that I would encourage um, your listeners to look at is... um, the uh, Stanford History uh, Education Group, who did a study a few years ago about civic online reasoning. And you can see all of that published for free online about how students from elementary school through high school have a really, bleak, <laughs> uh, really bleak habits when they're interacting with information online. Well,
1: and part of it is that interaction, but you also mentioned the reading and consuming. And I know, Suzanne, you've worked a lot with um, our remedial reading class that's the only way I know how to describe it but that helps and it's not even remedial it's it really is a reading class that helps our kids learn how to consume this kind of information and consume the kind of scholarship and data that they're doing so how do you see these kinds of things playing out in that kind of context where you're teaching them to read it and process it in that way Yeah, I think I've noticed that students tend to look at all sources as equal. It doesn't matter if it's a blog that they're reading or a journal. Now, the journals they tend to avoid because they're a little bit harder, um, but they treat all information as equal. And so by getting them into the academic sources and helping them learn to consume that information, we're hoping that they'll see what quality information looks like and be able to refer to that. So with the reading strategies, we do teach them To process and to critically think about their sources and not just accept whatever they're reading. And that can be tricky. I mean, those kinds of processes aren't the easy kind of processes, or I guess the better way to say it is direct kind of processes like math, right? You know, if you add two and two, it's going to always equal four, If you read this, it may equal that or it may equal that or, you know, you may put it together like that. So describe for our listeners some of the ways that we go about as librarians teaching our freshmen how to do some of these things, how to be better critical analyzers and better understanding about what they're using as part of their information.
3: Well, we have several learning outcomes when a student comes to the library, uh, usually in conjunction with coursework that they're doing at BYU. Um, One of the things that we want them to do is to know what our physical collection is. Um, And when I say that, I mean the books that we have in the library and how to interact with books and what they can offer as a research tool. Um, We also teach them how to topic, uh, narrow a topic a little bit, and by so doing come up with language that will help them search critically and well. Um, So we call those keywords. Um, And if a student doesn't have good keywords when they're approaching a search, oftentimes they're not going to find the information they want. Um, We obviously teach them how to navigate databases. But we've been doing a lot more uh, trying to teach about how students can engage with information that they're just uh, finding on the open web just every day, how to corroborate that information, and how to fact check, how to think like a fact checker a little bit more.
1: So describe that process. How do how do, how would you think like a fact checker?
3: Well, recent scholarship is showing that uh, fact checkers, when they're observed, they have a few distinct behaviors. One of them is what they call lateral reading. And so what that means is a fact checker is not going to stay on a website that they're double checking because a website can be highly problematic. You know, they're talking about themselves, but instead they're going to get off the website, go to places like PolitiFact or Snopes, you know, to double check. They're even going to go to Wikipedia and look up um, what organization put on this information. So they spend very little time reading from top to bottom on a website and instead read laterally or horizontally by opening up several other tabs to corroborate the information. So that's one behavior. But another behavior is that they um, exhibit – what's called click restraint. And so most freshman students, when we observe them, if they're looking for information on Google, are going to click on like the first one or two Google results, generally, if they search for something. However, a fact checker oftentimes will go down that list a little bit more and not click on the first few results, knowing that those can be easily bought and manipulated, and instead click on stuff a little bit further down on the list some very basic skills that are significantly important in this
1: information gluttonous world that we (laughs) live in. Thank you so much, ladies. Thanks. Thank you. I'd like to thank Elise and Suzanne for joining me around the librarians table. We've had a great show today. We talked with James Porter about his Space Center and Planetarium for Children. And we discussed summer reading and the summer slide with author Mary Bigler. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us.